Forward Guidance is brought to you by Vanek, a global leader in asset management since 1955. You'll be hearing more about Vanek ETFs later on, but for now, let's get into today's interview. Happy to welcome to Forward Guidance, Kyle Mowry, Portfolio Manager at Grizzly Rock Capital, a small cap value fund. Kyle, great to see you. Welcome to Forward Guidance. Jack, thank you for having me on. i uh, fan of the show. Appreciate it. So Kyle, you are invest in, primarily in small cap value. How do you define that, that universe? Tell us about that. Yeah, great question. Before we jump in, just a quick disclaimer for the legal and compliance folks that you know, Grizzly Rock manages a private fund. This is not a, a solicitation or any sort of investment advice, simply a discussion. Uh, looking very much forward to that, uh, you know, for informational and entertainment purposes only. So small cap value, sm- small caps are definitely their own world, if you will, within public markets, right? We're in a world in which MAG7 and, you know, NVIDIA is up just year to date. I think we're in week six and NVIDIA is up $700 billion this year. Wild, right? But there's a whole host of businesses in the Russell 2000 that are sort of a, a unique sandbox, right? And for many of us, well, less the, less of us than there used to be, but many of us play in that sandbox where we're looking on a fundamental basis and we're looking for businesses that are uh, significantly mispriced and really misunderstood. The sell side largely is uh, unfocused on that area because uh, why would they, right? Their, their business model requires significant trading volume. So there's an element of fundamental edge still very much exists in small caps. And that's where the cottage industry of small cap managers try to make their living, uh, of which our firm uh, is one. So talk about the stock market, you know, Apple, NVIDIA, those big companies, you're on the total opposite side, the, the companies that have what we say a market cap of a billion or less 2 billion or less. Yeah, our sweet spot is about one to three billion. But yeah, I think the Russell 2000 goes up a little bit past three billion now. But you know, for a lot of these products and services are not something that everyone's heard of, or maybe even would use day to day. There's a lot of, you know, B2B type services, a lot of things that aren't household names that fall in the index, but they have been around for a long time. And, and, and or they are, you know, revolutionizing their industry, whatnot, but an area for deep research shops to really add value. How would you define that that universe? And one thing, Kyle, that I, I hear a lot is, oh, the stock market isn't as strong, you know, the bull market isn't as strong in stocks as it might seem, because the Russell 2000 is, is still quite weak. So that's the index of small cap. So your world is contained in the Russell 2000. But your world is not, you know, the Russell 2000, because you're just you know, selecting a handful of stocks or a portfolio among the Russell 2000. And I, I kind of have an issue with that talking point because I, there's a structural weakness that you know, many people, not you know, I is not an original point, but many people have identified that a lot of small caps are small caps because they used to be nano caps and they're growing like crazy and they're going to go up in, in price. I mean, you're, you're not, you don't buy stocks because you want them to you know, stay at the current valuation. You want them to appreciate the value. But a lot of small caps are in the Russell 2000 because they were small caps 20 years ago and they were exactly where they are, or they used to be mid caps and it's a low quality business and sort of those kinds of stuff. So needless to say, I'm, I'm positive yet you were very bullish on the stocks that you and your fund owns, but how would you say, are you bullish on the asset class of small cap in the world of asset allocation? What, what is your outlook on that 
uh, small cap universe? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that we've been operating, uh, we're in year 13 now. And one of the biggest changes that we've experienced uh, over that time period really it kind of really reached an inflection point in say 2017 2018 and that was the rise of of passive everyone is well aware that passive flows have gone more to just buy an index rather than to active management active management long only uh, especially up and down the cap spectrum so small mid large and mega very dormant industry shrinking even and then the rise of style factors and momentum Certainly, year-to-date, we're taping this in February of 24, year-to-date, you know, momentum has just been, anything with momentum has worked. Uh, anything without momentum has lagged the indices uh, for the reason of the style factor, right? Many of those names haven't even reported earnings yet. So it's not as much of a fundamental market uh, as it used to be in, in small caps. And so small caps as a in an asset class if you think about it as an asset class which i do by the way because it's its own cottage industry there's different investment banks there's different players uh, the the board and management quality is is wildly divergent uh, there's some exceptional boards and and some great management teams but by and large the quality is pretty low and you know a lot of the boards are personal fiefdoms of the CEOs or whatnot and so you know it's really incumbent on small cap investors to use a rifle rather than a shotgun approach that's how i like to think about it i mean you're in an asset class that doesn't have flows it doesn't have a lot of sex appeal and yet you know how can one still eke out a solid return yeah it's finding companies that are going through inflections on their products you know, you mentioned things that used to be nano caps or things that will graduate out of small cap into mid and large. Yeah, absolutely. That's something we love to see. But there's a lot of other businesses that maybe the in market is only so big, right? And maybe it's a GDP plus grower and it's a very you know cyclical business. That's an area where active managers can add value, uh, especially if you are um, in the long short category in terms of uh, able to express short positions, which we are, by the way. So in that type of uh, scenario, you know, being specific and trying to avoid, you know, getting lumped into a giant style factor box game where you're just, you know, replicating style factors, you know, that's a way that one can and should, in my opinion, try to add value uh, working in small caps. So that's small cap. One of the fa factors being being small. What about the value factor? I think, you know, a lot of, People, myself including, when they first get into investing, they say, oh, well, obviously I want value. So that that is a cheap company. So get, get away from the company with a 30 price to earnings ratio. How about price to earnings of 10 or even three? You know, later on, they discover that the companies with the price to earnings ratio of three, you know, often has a lower qualities or more, more cyclical, has more debt, has some issues that the market is concerned about that the, the company with the PE of 30 does not. And so I think you'll value as a factor value you know, has underperformed for quite a, a long time. And that is somewhat uh, a, a historical, I believe, you know, probably in 2008 and before, like most historical periods, actually, the value factor performed cheap stocks did better. Do you have an explanation for why cheap stocks are actually doing worse? And then we'll get into why, you know, how there's a, that's a greater opportunity to use, use that rifle to, to, to select a portfolio of actually good companies, but do you have a theory as to, as to why value is underperformed? Well, everything in the market's cyclical. You referenced 08. I agree with you that largely value since 08 is 
been spelled with four letters and not five, right? This is value is is a is a dirty word to a lot of uh, people. Some people use the word fundamental. Some people use the word inflection. But value and on its on its face, I think value as a factor gets a bad rap because it's largely based, or at least the academic research is largely based on price to book. And in a in a yes. world that's driven by technology, book matters less and less for most companies. Book value was something that was in every analyst report 20, 25 years ago, and it's not a focus for most firms, including ours, right? Replacement cost can, in certain instances, especially if the company is on the block to be sold, add value. But replacement cost itself is is not even a number that is something that is reasonable to, to most companies anymore. It's not something that is even cal- calculable. Um, but in terms of what has occurred in the market, sure. Um, also network effects. Most value companies don't have massive network effects and things like Amazon, Apple, you're just completely locked in in terms of I'm, you know, as a net, as a natural person, users of those products on a daily or weekly basis. And I have been for a long time and probably will be for my entire life, right? So that's that's a distinctly different scenario than something labeled quote unquote value. Mm-hmm. So do you think that if you account for a value differently, not using price to book, that you get some different different results? Well, I personally use free cash flow. Free cash flow in the end is what's available for the owners over time. Over time, the returns to a stock should roughly approximate the free cash flow available for owners. Now, that is a long time frame and beyond the length of time of, of how many people think about stocks. It's at least a decade plus, right? Because it, in any one year, price as determined by market participants buying or selling stock has very little to do with the underlying business on a day-to-day uh, transaction by transaction basis. But as you lengthen your time frame, that is accurate. Now, for those of us who are trying to pick stocks uh, for return, you then need to be both right and then you need to have the right time horizon. And I think that is a challenge for many especially when you have uh, returns that are so quick or the seemingly so quick in the, you know, say COVID and post COVID for the technology world. I mean, other than 2022, you bought stock in mag seven, you made a good return in pretty quick, right? So it can lull many into complacency on small caps as an asset class. Price to book is like how much the market cap is relative to the book value or the equity value. And often the most overvalued companies on that metric actually are some of the highest quality companies in the world. Like Apple, I just checked is one of the highest price to book multiples company in the S&P 500. And that's because all of the value is intangible and, and not accounted for on the balance sheet. Okay. So how do you find value in the in the value names? Like what are what are what is your edge over like buying a in a, a passive approach to to value names? Tell us about your uh, process about like finding those those winners. One really strong way to do it in small caps specifically is looking for a business that has inflecting numbers going higher in, of, of EBITDA and free cash flow over the next one to three years. One year extends past some of the multi-manager, uh, quote unquote, pod style hedge funds. And then we're certainly not playing a, a longer term 
you know, five to 10 year private equity or venture capital type approach. But if you're looking in that one to three year period and you're right on where the numbers are going and the company has a good balance sheet and they're returning capital or at least investing in high return on invested capital projects, you're likely to get paid as a small cap investor. And so you're looking out, yeah, one to three years, look for inflecting free cash flow. If you can position yourself in front of it, you don't have to get the timing super precise on you know any one quarter or two. But if you're right on your thesis, it'll play out over a handful of earnings uh, announcements as, as the normalized expectations for the profitability of the business rise. The, the, the stock price usually does to a certain extent. So what's, your, what's your idea generation process like? Do you use screens? And then how do you uh, determine, okay, I've got 10 good ideas. I mean, I'm sure you don't have a, a shortage of good ideas or ideas that seem good at the time. How do you know, okay, maybe this idea seemed good, but it's a little too risky. Like how do you actually decide when to pull that trigger on, on your rifle? Yeah, so the Russell 2000 is actually dominated by a lot of uh, companies that require domain-specific expertise. So financials like regional banks would be one, or that's that's a specialist's game. Another would be, say, oil and gas, right? The best oil deals never leave Houston. I don't live in Houston. I'm not playing in that sandbox. So, you know, that we scrub out. That's about 1,100 companies. If if you're doing fundamental research, uh, you're going to be able to find something to do in 1,100 companies, right? That is a very, very broad and deep sandbox. And And so from there, we certainly do screen off historical uh, gap reported numbers. And, and we actually do use the sell side, the sell side's numbers, uh, at least directional numbers in terms of is this company experiencing an inflection over the next couple of years, kicks out a lot of things to look at. And many times we don't agree with the sell side's work and that's fine. But when you're taking 1100 down to something that's more manageable, say, you know, 200, 150, 200, and then and then you can actually go through and, and, and do fundamental deep dive, understand the company's service offering, product uh, suite, and really understand the industry structure and really do qualitative deep dive, right, uh, in the vein of Graham and Dodd style analysis uh, of, of the business and, and really understand what's going on with the business. And then that's how you generate your uh, expected free cash flow. And, and, and from there, it's really a force ranking uh, the most asymmetric companies upside downside of all the qualitative work that you've done. So that's a very brief synopsis, but asymmetric. So, you know, go up the most for the least yeah. amount of risk. How do you, how do you assess that? And do you look most asymmetric in terms of stock price or asymmetric in terms of free cash flow? Yes. Stock price. So I kind of just threw the portfolio management uh, piece in at the end you know, for us, we develop a, a fundamental estimation of what the company is going to do over the next five years. And we have stress case, base case, upside case, pretty standard modeling strategy, right? The value is all in getting the qualitative inputs, right? But you take the best, uh, the base case and the stress case, and say you think the stock can go up 100%, and you think if you're wrong, you lose 20%. Well, that's pretty good, right? That's five to one risk return. That's exceptional, right? So that what you're really saying is it, heads I win, tails I don't lose much, right? And and in that scenario, you know the company would most likely have a good balance sheet, or they're generating cash already, or there's other reasons why the downside is only twenty percent, and the upside is is a hundred. Maybe you're 
uh, looking at new products and, and the unit economics on them are stellar and the street is not really factoring that in or whatnot. And that's how you get something that's five to one upside downside. And so if you take those 150 companies that are kind of in your strike zone and your, and your team is sharp on and you take those and you force rank them, then that got, that helps give you a sense on what the position sizing should be within your portfolio. Like gold did, Bitcoin is establishing itself as a macro asset that potentially helps hedge against the government devaluation of your money. Finally, you can easily access Bitcoin in a low-cost ETF with the Vanek Bitcoin Trust, ticker HODL. Search the ticker HODL in your brokerage app today. Visit vanek.com slash HODLFG to learn more. That's vanek.com slash HODLFG. Now the disclosures. Investing involves risk and you can lose money on an investment in the Vanek Bitcoin Trust, also known as the Trust or HODL. The value of Bitcoin and therefore the value of the trust shares could decline rapidly, including to zero. You could lose your entire principal investment. For a more complete discussion of the risk factors relative to the trust, carefully read the prospectus link below. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. So a small cap value stock going up 100% uh, against the risk of it going down 20%. That's your, your five to one upside. How do you find, I guess, that upside convexity in value names, given that the asset class, and maybe I'm just thinking about the regional banks, have a history, and again, you said you don't invest in the regional banks, yep. but they have a history of the upside <laughs> is 20% and the downside is 100%. Again, I'm just thinking about regional banks in yeah. particular. But I, you know, I know, if you look at Microsoft, for example, one of the Magnificent Seven stocks, you can paint a picture of, you know, I can easily see how this could be worth, this could double in, in five years or something like that. But for a value name that's, you know, growing its its earnings at maybe a lower lower rate, how do you get that? Is it a re-rating? Are you saying, oh, I expect this company to go from a pre-PE of price earnings of six to 10 or what? Yeah. So a lot of times what you're trying to do is invest in the company during a period of inflection. And perhaps the best way to answer that question is to use an example. So there's a company, and we've been public that we own this. It's in our 13F as well, um, called Ferroglobe. Uh, Ferroglobe is the largest uh, American and European producer of silicon metal and, and ferrosilicon. Silicon metal is a, an industrial product, right? Uh, dare I even say a uh, certain amount of commodity aspects to that, although their grades are high purity, which is very important because... Another one of uh, the end markets for silicon metal is actually polysilicon, which turns into solar panels. So if you're going to be producing domestically sourced solar panels in the US or EU, Ferroglobe is likely going to be uh, among your first call or two for supply, right? And if you study the Inflation Reduction Act and the, and the European Climate Bill, you see that that is, in fact, being encouraged by the authorities in terms of domestic supply. So you have a business... That business, Ferroglobe, used to be uh, levered with respect to the balance sheet. It is now completely unlevered. It used to not pay a dividend and not have share of purchase, right? And it used to be focused primarily in, in markets that were very cyclical. So industrials, autos, construction, et cetera. However, that's not the case now. Now the business is completely unlevered. The capital return policy begins in 24 and runs out a ways. And we think the stock is trading at a 15 to 20% free cash flow yield on this year's numbers. And we think numbers go higher out into the future. So you have it uh, with solar, solar growth. So you have a stock that's beginning capital return. It has no financial leverage. 
um, and that money is actually flowing back to shareholders. There's no empire building. There's no giant facility to go build. There's no industry-wide M&A cycle to be had. And so we think that the free cash flow that's generated by Ferroglobe is going to flow through to consumers, right? And so if if nothing happens other than that cash is returned to me via dividend or share or purchase, I earn 15 to 20% a year. But if the multiple rises, and multiple is just shorthand for what folks are willing to pay for the business or what they- Valuation. Yeah, it's DCF, right? So by definition, a lot of the companies you're invested in or, or take a look at have a low multiple because they're value stocks. Yes, um, we certainly do some network effect, uh, Garpy type stuff. But yes, I think what's probably most interesting for this interview is value because that's a unique fact with respect to what we do that others aren't as focused on today. And so. some some case in case like it just stopped losing money, so it earned one penny, then the price to earning ratio can be like you know a thousand or something sure. like that. Do you, do you ever invest in unprofitable companies? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. You know, I brought up that we don't just do sort of industrial businesses with good free cash flow. There's a business called ACV Auctions. Uh, that business uh, does wholesale, so it's B two B auto auctions on online. Okay, and so instead of going to a regional auto sale and trading with the guy you've been friends with for thirty years, you actually can sell. This uh, the car anywhere in the U.S. and have ACV auctions go through and uh, do the financing, do the transportation, really uh, prove out with uh, audio and visual use the use of technology to um, you know you don't have to see the car or take a mechanic to the car. You know they have mechanics that provide uh, reports that they back, etc. And but that business was negative EBITDA. Um, when we invested in it, primarily because they were focused on geographic expansion. The unit economics in their original markets, which were primarily in the Northeast, U.S. Northeast, were exceptional once they got to the maturation, which is typically in year three. But if you take that, the unit economic model, and you say, okay, we're going to go national, which is, and I'm shortening the story, but if we're going to go national and you invest, there's going to be a lot of individual uh, cohorts that are losing money in years one and two, but as they mature into three, four, five, the curve as the company comes up the EBITDA curve, it it becomes highly, highly profitable. Wonderful unit economics on a per car basis, even better economics on a geographic DMA basis, and the product and service of the digital auto auction is actually better than a wholesale in in person. And I think ultimately there'll be a place for both wholesale in person, which have existed for you know 100 plus years, and digital. But digital is a winner take most market, and this business does have a significant market share. We think they have the best technology. They're focused on it, and we think they're going to you know take a lion's share of that. So while that business was negative EBITDA when we invested in it, it's absolutely a focus on unit economics and free cash flow. That free cash flow just wasn't in year one, right? We were looking out to four to five years in that original scenario. Yeah, and so they're kind of like CarMax, but just between businesses, not with consumers? Correct, yes. They do not have a B2C offering. It's typically, think of it as a funnel. I mean, if, you, if you're if you an auto dealer, uh, you know, and you, you say you're a Ford dealer and you receive a, a Lexus trade-in, well, you might be able to sell it on your lot. 
you might have a sister dealer uh, ship who's you know Toyota or Lexus. You can you know, sell it to them at a reasonable price. And most uh, transactions occur in that manner. But if not, if you have it on your lot, or maybe you have you know five Lexuses and you really only want three on your lot, what people historically used to do would be go go to take it to the auction. You go to the auction, you take your mechanics, a couple of mechanics, so they can you know peek under the hood at at the cars or run them through their diagnostics, and so you'd have a sense for it. Car would come up on a block, you'd bid on it, maybe you know, then you buy and sell and transact in that way. But there's a cost to taking the car to auction. There's a cost of taking your team to the auction, right? So ACV is actually disrupting with technology uh, this, you know, century-old business in a way that's um, very, very efficient for for the for the user. And so, you know, we think they're going to we have a network effect business and be very, very profitable in a couple of years and far higher than the street is. Uh, in fact, modeling. In what way is it a value stock if it's not uh, profitable? Would that be on a price to sales multiple? Yeah, I distinctly despise price to sales. Um, and the reason is I can sell a lot of products unprofitably yeah. and that never generates any return for the owner of the business. That's the way I think about the world. If you own a stock, you own a fractional interest in a business. In this case, why is it uh, value investing. It's value investing because we're focused on unit economics. We're focused on free cash flow. But when we originally underwrote the business, free cash flow was uh, going to be in 2026 and beyond, right? And so that was, I think we originally bought it in late 21 or, or 22. Um, but I can't exactly remember, but we still own it today. And you know, we think we think the business just continues to get better in terms of the unit economics, in terms of where the numbers are are going. There's absolutely it's a value stock because it's cheap relative to its future free cash flow. Tell me about the metrics that you use. You said EBITDA. You talked a lot about free cash flow. Uh, I don't I don't think I've heard you talked about use net income, although that you know that is commonly what's thought of as earnings. Why do you focus on EBITDA and free cash flow over net income? And especially, I'd say EBITDA has somewhat of a shaky reputation, especially on the growth, you know, because it, there are a lot of key, key costs that are not being included in, in EBITDA. Yes, and some of my investing heroes, including the uh, late, great Charlie Munger, you know, despise EBITDA. EBITDA, for me, the reason I use it is it, it allows us to normalize for balance sheets, right? So we, on every single one of our companies, we start with net income and then we walk to EBITDA, both the management number and then if we think some of the adjustments don't make any sense, we'll actually throw them out. So that is, you know, before the income statement, um, <clears throat> before the balance sheet has any uh, impact on on the free cash flow, we will be able to normalize that number. Certainly, one of the things, one of the numbers that we uh, didn't discuss yet is capital expenditures or, or you know, capex. Over time, that should equal depreciation and amortization, which is the DA and EBITDA. But um, for short periods of time, you know, if you got an older, you know, value style business, sometimes the DNA is really, you know, high, and the capex is really low. So, you know, the free cash flow is determined by you know what comes in minus the capex, and so, you know, it's it it just allows us to normalize to free cash flow easily in that way. As someone who is invested in seeing through the process of seeing an investment work or, or not work, 
what are some conclusions that you draw about? Let's start when it doesn't work. So, you know, I'm sure you've got a lot of companies with a price earnings of anywhere from five to 10. You've you've seen a lot of them work. You've seen a lot of them haven't. The ones that didn't work, what what were the reasons that those investments uh, uh, failed? And, you know, how do you know when to get out? Our batting average is never going to be 100%. It just isn't. And why is that? Well, the world's a complex place, right? You know, for instance, we were long certain transportation companies in late 2019. And lo and behold, here comes COVID, right? That did not help their free cash flow, certainly through that period, right? I mean, the world is a messy place and it changes constantly, not only industries, but also competition within industries. New products arise, you know, competitors or governments change regulation or companies or customers just choose uh, change their preferences in the consumer landscape. You know, customers just, you know, now they want to, you know, wear on, on branded shoes rather than Nike, right. Or whatever it is. I mean, it's, it, the world is a complex place. And so when our assumptions change or proved inaccurate, then we get out, right? Intellectual honesty requires that if your thesis is wrong, you just get out. It's fine to be wrong. It's not fine to lose money, right? I mean, we're wrong all the time. That's not <clears throat> something that no, no person in the history of the world uh, can be right all the time. And so that's fine. We're, the world is changing constantly. And as long as things are tracking our base case, we stay in the investment. And if not, then we move on. Yeah, so you say you own some transportation companies. They struggled during COVID. I mean, you could tell us what what kind of transportations were like. Were they airlines or, or trains or, or or what? And also, so that that is kind of you know, I mean, no one really could could forecast that. You can't put that in a oh, you know, we got you got to adjust that global pandemic risk premium. But in, in terms of other other times, like what what was the thing? The earnings just weren't there. You 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 thought they. Cuts, sure. and they, they didn't do it. Was it typically management related? Like what were the, the connecting threads, you know? Yeah. So one of the unique aspects of being a public market investor is you're, you're operating with pieces of information at, at any one time. A lot of times, of course, you get the gap numbers and you get a lot of what the management wants to tell you, but you don't really know what it's like to work inside the company. You're not really up to speed, right? Like that's private information. So we're always operating with imperfect information. And, you know, a lot of times when companies are telling you that they're, you know, say, say it's a turnaround and they're telling you it's on track and all of a sudden it's not on track or they're telling you it's on track and they don't need to buy anyone, but then they go and, but then they go and buy someone or there's, they do a tuck in because of, oh, we need to, you know, bolster the products. Like, well, hang what's on. A tuck in? What's, a, I don't, what's a tuck in? Sorry, a small acquisition. Okay, okay. Tuck in acquisition to uh, bolster their product suite. And then you get on the phone with management and say, wait a minute, I thought you said your product suite was excellent. Why'd you do this? And say, oh, well, we actually really just needed to, and it's like, okay, well, you were lying the first time, right? You don't say that to them, but you hang up and then say it to your team, right? I mean, yeah, it's yeah. it's just, that happens often in public markets investing in all uh, cap spectrums, but certainly in small caps. Capital allocation is a huge problem. Most managements and boards treat it very flippantly. Um, they, they treat the company as if they're not owners in a way. And uh, that's really challenging for people like me. They make money and they're cheap, price to earnings of 
five. I mean, how can I lose? It's a lose of when they make that er those earnings, they don't deploy it in a way that is optimally efficient, either in terms of what paying down debt, buying back stock. What so they they tend to what do they tend to prioritize growth of top line numbers over other metrics? Because you know, in economics one on one, you learn your companies make product up until they stop making money. Their marginal revenue equals marginal cost. Yeah, I think you know studying public companies, not just in the value world, like that's that's not true. Um, so what what do managements do? Depends on what they're incentivized to do, right? Which is why reading the proxy is so important. If the CEO is being compensated on total EBITDA rather than you know on a per share metric, he he or she is far more likely to pursue a path of um, M and A, and that path of M and A typically would not add much value and many M&A transactions destroy value for shareholders. Because it was explained, so they, they maximize EBITDA, but not earnings or not earnings per share. So for sure. they, they can yeah. get paid a lot of money by just issuing yeah. a ton of stock, using that as cash to buy a new company and then incre increasing revenue and increasing EBITDA. But total, to, if, you know, you own the share, you just got diluted and, and it's not accretive. Exactly. And, you know, show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome, right? Back to Munger. And and so that's why reading the proxy and understanding um, who's getting paid, what and why and how, and you know, but the proxy will tell you it's there in black and white. And many times managements will spin this long story, you know, and that most of them are great sales people because how do you get those jobs? These jobs are incredibly lucrative. You have to be very convincing, very intelligent, and and polished to do that. And so it's very easy for these people to delude um, themselves as well as you, the public markets investor. And that's why looking at the proxy and really getting down to brass tacks on how the compensation structure works uh, is so important, especially in small caps. And how do you try and be ahead of the curve in terms of analyzing you know, your, your thesis? We got to get out of the stock because our thesis changed. We were bullish for X, Y, Z reason. Now our thesis has changed. I bet a lot of the issue, a lot of the issue, though, is that the information that comes out that would change your thesis, like say in a quarterly earnings, everyone gets that at the same time, and their thesis changes too. And the stock, you know, like Snapchat comes to mind recently, uh, you know, is down is down thirty percent. Like New York Community Bank share investors, I bet their their thesis changed when they found yeah. out what what happened, and that's why you know the stock is down you know eighty percent just you know within it within a few weeks. So. How do you try and get ahead of the curve? Do you, it's just kind of a it's a suspicion that management is doing this. I don't know it for sure, but you know I think our our funds capital can be deployed elsewhere, better elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, look, of course you're going to have situations where companies are going to miss earnings and they're going to beat earnings, right? But by and large, if you're doing really exceptional fundamental research on the companies, you're going to get more right than wrong. Right. If you're taking a one to three year approach, any one quarter should not be the driver of your thesis. Right. Each of those data points should be uh, confirmatory or at least not this uh, confirming what you're uh, already underwritten. Of course, you're going to have stocks down and up on earnings. That's part and parcel of the game. But if you're doing the proper research, which, by the way, includes speaking with formers, different internet boards. There's a lot of information in the public domain uh, that's not on the SEC's website, but it's absolutely public information about, you know, Glass Glassdoor, what it's like to work at the company, mm -hmm. right? There's a lot of information that 
you know, oh, this management team, you know, tells the street that they're so kind to their employees and they hang up with Wall Street and, and start dropping F-bombs on their employees. It's like, okay, well, you're going to, that's going to engender a lot of turnover on your staff or, you know, people don't like getting yelled at. No one does. So there's going to be issues with culture there. And if there's issues with culture, then you want to know that before you invest in the company rather than say after. Mm, that makes sense. What's the cheapest stock you've ever bought uh, with your with your fund? Oh, man, the cheapest stock. I think the way that we look at these are on free cash flow. So there's a lot of businesses that will buy in the 25 to 30% free cash flow out like two years. Now, if the numbers come in according to our base case, you know, most of the businesses, because we don't do deep, deep cyclicals or things that are like, if something's like tied to the price of, of a metal or oil, or oil, it, you know, WTI goes to 100, I make a, a trillion dollars. If it goes to 50, I'm completely wiped out. Like that is not our play at all. So, you know, most of them are, are volume based. Oh, if this product commercializes, um, then it's it's a sticky product. It's probably, you know, a 10% free cash yield. So if we're buying it at 30 and we're right, we triple our money, that, that sort of thing. I think when you get into like deep value, like uh, Monish Pebrai always talks about like how to buy like a one times earnings, one times EPS business. You can do that. The easiest way to do it is um, buy something that's 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 cyclical, but be right in the cycle, right? And the yeah. guys, I'll give you an example that I was not involved in. You know, uranium. The uranium bulls have been incredibly accurate, but then I'll give you another the downside where, where I was also not involved. You know, the lithium folks. If you did anything in lithium in the last year, you've gotten your head sliced off because of the price of lithium. So you know that game can be played well. There's many prolific on on fintwit finx whatever it's called now um they're very vocal on on price of commodities and it's wildly entertaining to read but that's just not who we are as a, as a fund manager i think there's great people um that, that do that we don't because those investments are largely predicated on the price of the underlying commodity so any cyclical company is going to have you know where the trough earnings are where the peak earnings are then where the mid cycle earnings are. Um, for us, we we know each of those numbers on anything that we do that is commodity adjacent, but our our plays are on volume, right? So using Fairglobe specifically, if solar comes through, you know, McKinsey thinks the industry is going to grow 20% a year for the next 10 years. If McKinsey is correct in their analysis, there's a lot of bright people that work there, then there's going to be a lot more volume pulled through Fairglobe and the earnings power of the business uh, is going to be driven much higher because of the volume rather than the price. The price will certainly fluctuate, and we can pull up price on Bloomberg. Very easy. Price is very easy to understand in commodity business. But when we underwrote Ferroglobe, we ran low price, high price, and understanding the industry structure, who, which competitors and which furnaces shut off when the price drops below X, right? Understanding that industry structure allows you to be confident in your mid-cycle return number on on uh, EBITDA and free cash flow. And then from there, if you're right on volume, then you're going to get paid, right? And so the focus is on volume rather than price. Thanks. So what is the cheapest company you've ever bought? And you can use that either as the cheapest price to free cash flow multiple when you bought it or what you thought the earnings 
would be, um, again, because that, that changes. But however you want to interpret that question. Try to stick to things we've been public on. In 2019, at uh, I live in Chicago, uh, at Chicago's version of Iris Home, which is called Invest for Kids, wonderful charity, all the money goes uh, to uh, underprivileged youth in the Chicagoland area. Great, uh, great effort. I pitched Darling Ingredients, and Darling Ingredients is a producer of renewable diesel. And at the time, their facilities were functionally just ramping. The unit economics were exceptionally accretive. They're exceptionally profitable. But the renewable diesel market was a newer market. It wasn't well understood by the investing public. I think when I gave that presentation publicly, stock was at 19. Two years later, I think that stock was at, I don't know, 75. Right. And so we were right for the right reason on based on the unit economic work. That was enjoyable, especially because it was for charity. What industries do you tend to swim in? It sounds like a lot of industrial companies. And and also, could you explain further about how you don't get into specialist industries? Look, I get all the best deals, oil deals never get out of Texas, but when it comes to the banks, I feel like a lot of what you're talking about is pretty is is more specialist than mm-hmm. than banking. Like it's pretty it's more in the weeds to than banking, I feel like. Yeah, we don't do a lot of financial services. It's really hard to get a fundamental edge in financial services. Many banks are are a black box. Certainly management quality and, and history, board quality, et cetera, can be really valuable there. But I ha- I happen to think banking and financial services is one of the best uh, areas for sector specialists, right? I mean, allocators largely... Uh, most of most of our investors are, are family offices and institutional investors. They're very smart, right? A lot of people, a lot of people have issues with allocators. Sort of beyond the scope of this conversation, unless you want to go down that path. But you know, allocators are very smart. They've focused on using domain-specific expertise, certainly in healthcare, things like pharma, biotech. That's a great area. Um, consumer long short, you know, there's a lot of the larger funds working in mid and large cap R sector specialists. And I think there's a lot of uh, value there. I just postulate that small cap is such a unique market with its own, its own conferences, its own suite of companies that that functionally is a specialist, you know, we're specialists in small cap. I, other than talking about Mag7 at a high level, I couldn't give you a single number on those companies. I don't study those companies, right? I'm studying companies that you and uh, most folks, even re- who read the Wall Street Journal every day, probably haven't even heard of. Yeah, I haven't heard of any of these companies before our conversation. Yeah. Yeah, no, look, it works for us, right? And our, our part of the ecosystem, which is de minimis relative to some of the larger um, you know, asset classes that get a lot of play on Bloomberg or CNBC, right? Financial television, financial media, right? But there's a cottage industry of uh, many, many smart folks who are out here trying to generate return and, and generate value. And I think at one point, like when I started my career 20 years ago, small caps were all the rage. I mean, that may or may not happen again, but if so, I'd be very, very happy. Why were they the rage? What was going on? I guess the the dot-com bubble had just bursted, so value is the best performing. When I was graduating from college, the trailing returns to small and particularly small value uh, dwarfed all other asset classes in the public markets. Um, it's just, you know, we we live in a, such a wonderful country with respect to economic freedom and, and capitalism as this, 
you know, machine that, that continues to march forward uh, and develop products and services that make everyone's life better. But small, it, it's just where these cycles are, right? I mean, uh, you know, some of the quants, like um, Toby Carlisle is pretty good about explaining these cycles, like 15, 17 year type things. Like value will absolutely work again one day and NVIDIA will probably not add $600 billion of market cap in six weeks into perpetuity, right? That's where the returns have been the last, you know, 10, 15 years. But at some point, I don't have like a time timestamp for you, but at some point value will will work again. And and in that environment, uh, the folks that work in the cottage industry of small caps like me, hopefully will will be there and um and pick up some of that tailwind. But uh, sorry, in terms of the industries that you invest in, so you you, you talked like do you have a specialty or you go, you go everywhere? No, we're generalists. I mean, we we define, we have to be able to understand the business and the product and the service. So, you know, we're not going to be able to get a beat on the next oncology drug. Mm -hmm. Right. But in terms of consumer, uh, you know, materials, industrials, some financial services, some technology, right. Like I can understand that, auto auction market that's with enough research that's something i can understand why an auto dealer will sell a car uh to whom and at what price and understand the unit economics of that industry so the if we can understand the industry we'll we'll uh roll up our sleeves and dive in how do you think passive the rise of passive investing has changed uh the market and how as you as an investor where most of the passive flows are not going how can can you adapt yeah, great question. So passive has just um, certainly increased things. The, bi- the big get bigger. Um, it's also been a time uh, in which network effect businesses have kind of been on the rise. And I think disassociating those two are really hard, right? Not only, you know, you, you can't understand where the numbers are for, say, the mag seven versus where the multiple is. And they've both gone up. For asset classes that aren't having as much passive flows, small caps included, the investors have to be very precise with how are you going to get paid? It doesn't work for me to buy a stock and then the rest of the folks see it, you know, six months later, price closes to value, I sell it and move on, rinse and repeat. That worked for a long time. That no longer works. So how does one focus on names that are going undergoing inflection in numbers and that are returning cash to shareholders? You know, they're buying back stock, they are tendering for bo- their bonds, et cetera. That means they're, bu- they're buying back their bonds? Does that mean? Sure, yeah. I'm yeah. just saying, yeah, the, the capital is flowing back. They're generating good earnings, and then it's actually you know not being used to grow the business. And if it is, it's, it's at extremely high ROIC numbers, way higher than the you know cost of capital of the business. So, so you, you invest in, in companies that specifically are going to return capital to, to shareholders. So mo- mostly via buyback. So would you say that a lo- like most of the firms you invest in are, is it that kind of story where they're, you're looking for them, they're either doing buybacks or that you're looking for them to start doing that? Well, most, I would say, I don't know if it's most, but it's every company that we invest in, there's a path to getting paid, right? We think the numbers are going up. Great. Uh, we think that they are going to be doing something positive with that money that could be share purchase or dividends that could be uh, ROIC projects that are, you know, 40%. Most companies don't have a cost of capital of 40%. So if you have a way to de-bottleneck your facilities or grow a new product, product category at 40% ROIC, 
go and do it. And then that raises your secular earnings power that much, right? And most of the time, especially in small caps, there's not as deep small fundamental research from the sell side. And so if we can see that and we can understand where those numbers are going out one to three years, then we can position ourselves for success if, if, if our base case comes to fruition. But how do you think about, about passive? Do you think it distorts the market? I mean, some people use that phrase, but like I'm looking at, you know, NVIDIA and it's tripled yeah. its earnings and, you know, it's earning like on trailing 12 months, close to $20 billion. When it was at the low valuation of $300 billion market cap in October of 2022, you know, it had a forward price earnings ratio of, of 20. So like the reason the video has gone up so much is not passive has definitely something to do with it in terms of the overall flows, but like yeah. it's because of the fundamental situation. Do, do you, I, I feel like sometimes people overrate passive in terms of explaining why like the mag seven have gone up. No, I 100% agree with you. I mean, look at, there's two components to that. Uh, there's where the earnings are going and then the multiple that one puts on them. And when you have something like NVIDIA, the people who were long it were talking about disruption and these, you know, these chips were going to become ubiquitous and here's why. And, and they were right. They were absolutely right on the unit economics, regardless of um, the size of the company. It was a unit economics or, or really a, a in-market understanding and understanding of where that market was going. I don't steady that company. It's too large for me, but that's just our mandate. Yeah, maybe, maybe you would have. It was three hundred and thirty million instead of three hundred and thirty billion. You, but if we go back to the conversation about you said the the value factor. Are you, are you short term bullish or bearish on the value factor? Well, I've been running this fund over twelve years, and value has only been a tailwind in a couple of them. I think there are structural issue, issues with the value factor, uh, as as it's discussed. Price book, certainly one of them. But I think everything in the markets are cyclical, right? I would like to think that value factor works over the next decade. I just don't, I can't, it's not an investable thesis, in my opinion, to say, you know, everyone wants to call the bottom in, in every asset class, but certainly value growth, right? I mean, you look at, there's so many charts, and it's like, oh, value is the cheapest to growth. It's been in 20 years, then the next year, it's the cheapest in yep. 21, you know what I mean? And then, okay, but that doesn't actually put returns on the page. And if you're a professional investor or just investing for yourself, putting returns down is like what your job is. So it's not an academic exercise, what's the cheapest asset class? It's how do you actually generate return? And so, yes, at some point, I would like to think that the value factor comes back. But unfortunately, uh, I'm not here to call the bottom and the value factor. It, it may continue to uh, antagonize us uh, for, for a bit longer. And, and what do you think about large cap value? I mean, a lot of people going on TV talking about, let's say the perfect example, IBM, it's cheap. I mean, Warren Buffett has invested in this company. So it's definitely, yeah. you know, I mean, it's, it's got a great track record, but it's, it's, it's a, I believe a lo low growth company and the, the quality of the earnings are not what, you know, some of it's like what NVIDIA's are. Those types of companies, do you think that, the value to growth factor in the large caps, you know, is accurately reflected in, in the just difference in valuations. And it's like, yeah, this company has a 30 price earnings and this has a 14 and there's a reason why. Yeah. I, I look, I think the markets are broadly efficient, certainly up, up market cap, broadly efficient means that a lot of those things trading at low PEs are in fact value traps. Value traps are called that because 
they're cheap, they seem cheap, but then they just stay cheap. And it's very annoying to be in them. We have been in them before. We will undoubtedly be in them again, at even in small caps. But I, you know, I don't know IBM specifically, but there's some of these big companies have a lot of entropy. And when the world changes rapidly, it's really hard for these companies to adjust their products, their services. You know, there are a lot of people at companies like IBM who've been doing the same same thing for 25 years. And so I think a lot of times, especially in, in markets that have quicker product cycles or whatnot, you really want to be focused on who's developing the new mousetrap in terms of good unit economics, good customer service. And that's why I brought up ACV auctions. You, you know, that's a technology business. That's a small cap business. I think, you know, it's, a, it's not a huge market, right? There's only so many cars that are going to flow through that market in every uh, in a year. And that's just, that is what it is. And so it'll never be a company as large as something that'll be in the Mag 7, but it'll be a wonderful product for its customers and a, and a wildly profitable business uh, for its owners for a very long time in our estimation. So that's the type of work that I think uh, can pan out in small caps. Well, all caps. But. You know, what are some tricks at the trade that you've learned about how to avoid a value trap? You said you know, you, you've been there and you're probably gonna make that mistake again, but what's the mistake that you, you, know, you 15 years ago, you would have fallen in love with this, you know, podunk six price to earnings company that now, you know, you have, you know, you, I mean, you don't have gray hair, but you, know, you got a little gray hair, you got a little wisdom and you're saying- Couple, uh-huh. there's a couple. Yeah. yeah, okay. You know, I'm gonna avoid this company at first. It, you know, it's optically attractive, but it actually is, you know, nothing but heartbreak there. I think for a lot of us who work at, uh, work at a desk, and I do most days work at a desk, a lot of us have Excel open. And it's very easy to punch in numbers and then forget how those numbers are actually being generated. And I think people and culture are two of the things that the average value investor could be benefited by thinking about more, right? So if you have exceptional people and or great culture, those numbers over time are going to reflect that. But many of these cheap businesses uh, have been around for a while, or maybe they you know, came out of a product cycle, earnings went really high, you know, and, 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 and they got, as one of my old high school coaches used to say, fat, dumb, and happy, right? If you got a bunch of employees who are fat, dumb, and happy, and they're not focused on where uh, the industry is going or how to improve their customer offerings and product mix, then that's how you get value traps. So I think for, for us, it's about, you know, not only studying the, the companies and the SEC uh, filings, but also understanding the culture, understanding the industry structure, who's dynamic in the industry, you know, go to trade shows, walk trade show floors, buy a ticket. It doesn't have to be a Wall Street event. Go do it. We've been to tons of events where we're the only investors there. Literally, the only investors, you know, talk to people on LinkedIn. You know, we for, for us, we're professionals. We, we do use expert networks, right? We run an extensive, extensive compliance um, on, on that sort of information. But then, you know, talk to these people. Maybe they used to work there. Maybe they worked there for 15 years and they left. And, why, and you find out, you talk to a few people who left because they hate the, the uh, new management team. You say, okay, well, that cannot be good long term, right? Or most likely not. So it's a time-intensive process. Um, It's not glorious going and talking to a bunch of formers in towns 
that you may or may not have ever heard of, um, but is a great way to understand the, the people and the culture of the business in a way that, you know, punching uh, EBITDA, CapEx, and free cash flow into Excel, just it's not going to get you there. Uh, you spoke very highly previously of Charlie Munger, who I you know, obviously agree with you, great investor, great man. I, I believe it was Warren Buffett uh, who said that the best investments are simple and easy. You could write it down on a you know a, um, a note, a notepad, or a flashcard. I guess. Do you agree with that? It sounds like some of the businesses you invest in, you know, might you might have to write pretty small on that note card. They're pretty, at least for for me. It's not like oh yeah, people like Coca Cola. Well, in, yeah, I, period. I'm a professional investor, but that's like the average NBA player comparing themselves to Michael Jordan. Yeah, right. You just don't want to do it because the skills are. Like I would never compare myself to Buffett because while our clients are pretty happy and the returns are solid, Buffett is a, is a unique uh, individual. I think what he's saying is it's simple. Once you understand the business, that implicit in that statement is he understands the industry. He understands the, the unit economics on every product or, or service rendered, right? And And then he understands why it's cheap. And so, yeah, we do, yes, it all gets boiled down to something that you can put on a napkin, but there's a lot of work in developing that conviction first. And, and also, for those of us that run funds, you probably have to make more than one investment every three to four years. That's just the way the business works. And so there's a lot of, yeah, sure, everyone talks about, you know, punch card, 20 names in a lifetime. Yeah, those are going to be sized in a way that they can maximize return given your, you know, whatever the profile of the fund is on risk return. But there's a lot of other businesses that aren't punch cards that if you're doing this sort of fundamental work, they're still going to be very asymmetric in your favor. And so, yeah, maybe it takes two or three uh, napkins rather than one, but if you can do them right and balance the, the, you know, the different drivers to them, I I still think it could be profitable um, over time. Sorry to interrupt, just want to tell you about BlockWorks' upcoming crypto symposium in London, the Digital Asset Summit, which is running from March 18th to March 20th. Everyone in crypto is going to be there, not just the experts and policymakers, but the real industry leaders writing the checks. Over $800 billion in assets is going to be represented. Anyone who's anyone in crypto is going to be there. So if you're into crypto and you haven't bought your ticket yet, the time is now to get your ticket. I would not wait any longer. We've got some exciting guests on the macro side too. Julian Brigden, Michael Howell. And yes, I can confirm at last the rumors are true. Joseph Wang, the Fed guy himself, is going to be there too. I'll be hosting a panel with these macro heavyweights that you don't want to miss. So be there or be square. Click the link in the description and use code FG10 to get 10% off. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. So you're long short. Tell us about your short book. How how do you form a short portfolio? And is your process for idea generation and, and research the same, similar to, to Long's, or is it completely different? Yeah, it's certainly similar in terms of you know focusing on how, how to get paid. Street numbers are too high. We think the numbers are coming down. That could be for a lot of different reasons. You know, we are not activist short sellers. Um, so we don't write online. That's actually a couple former uh, employees have gone on and chosen that career path, uh, which is uh, entertaining for me to read. But I don't, they are I don't, entertaining to read. And they're, they're, work, those companies usually do not perform well, and the stocks usually do go down. Yeah, no, activist short selling is a, is a really interesting way to make money, right? It kind of didn't exist, you know, till really, you know, Muddy Waters and these guys kind of 
made it a thing. I think short sellers do a lot of good. There's a lot of ways to um, uh, companies not to be up and up. There's a lot of corporate malfeasance that kind of slides. And if they can get, if management can get the board to go along with it or everyone's sort of complicit, then, you know, the investment banks are just want to do deals. And then around and around you go, you get, you get some shady business activities in the public market for sure, right? Especially those with narrative. Yeah. And often the companies that are the junkiest, the most likely to go bankrupt, they want, they pay the highest fees, you know, like Berkshire does not pay that high fees for for investment work. (laughs) (laughs) Look, Wall Street is a very unique place. Much of Wall Street is value creative in terms of it's a way to raise capital for, you know, new products, services. It's a way for entrepreneurs to diversify after building a wonderful business. But because fortunes can be made relatively easily, it, it acquire it, you know, attracts a lot of people who are incredibly smart and incredibly uh, silver-tongued, shall we say. And so that's where, you know, short sellers have a place to, to, to play, in our opinion. Um, but we try to go about it in an ethical manner. We're not out to put anyone in jail or, you know, get paid by the, you know, whistleblower rewards. Yep. All we're trying to do is say this stock's overvalued. And what shorting at its core does for us is let us sit out market drawdowns uh, and, you know, left tail events um, and or just bear markets, right? And and that way we can kind of keep going forward rather than taking three steps forward, two steps back. Through, you know what I mean? And so for us, we're going and we're making a bet on specific companies, but we don't talk to management of those companies or we try to not talk to management because management is not there to talk to us, right? We do talk to management of our longs, for sure. We, you know, we try to develop theses or understanding of where the business is and what our variant view is, put it on, be willing to trade it. Most of them don't go to zero. Um, Some do, that's always kind of nice. But most of them don't go to zero. And so we're willing to trade it and, you know, and, you know, have that staying power over time. But as a, as a business and for our clients, right. To feel confident in the type of return profile that we have. The process is very similar, understanding the business product services, and then ultimately, you know, why the street numbers are wrong or what's implied by the price is just erroneous in terms of the free cash flow that the business will ultimately generate. So more often than not, are you short a company because, Oh, this has a PE of 15 and I'm along a, a very similar stock that has a PE of five or is it, it has a PE of seven, but the quality of that seven P price to earnings of that, of their, of their earnings multiple is very, very low. And, you know, this, basically this company has a lot of, of issues. So are you, are they valuation shorts, which people say, you know, don't do valuation shorts on an outright basis. That may be correct. But if yeah. you're short, you know, a, you know, a, a expensive company uh, with a small sizing relative to a, a high quality to very cheap company that you've underwritten and, and done a lot of work with, maybe that, yeah. maybe that has a better track record. Yeah, it's really about what is implied by the price and why is it wrong. I will give you an industry that we're currently short and why and why we're shorted. Um, so the the recreational vehicle market, the RV market is incredibly cyclical, right? You can just go back and you study their cycles, significant downturn in any consumer recession. Um, COVID was a huge boom for that industry, right? 
the one thing you could do in COVID was go outdoors and not be near anybody, right? So the RV market had a huge boom, right? Well, the street largely has the numbers going out next few years to be continuing to be reasonable. Um, and the profits, which are which were extremely high during COVID for most of these businesses, are still projected to be relatively robust. We have a divergent opinion, and that's just based on you know studying the the not only the new amount of RVs piling up, but also there's a lot of RVs that are gently used that are good options if folks want to get into that market. So there's more people you know, kind of looking to get out of their RV than into an RV these days, as opposed to where we were three, four years ago with COVID. And so the street is just a bit glib in how they're modeling the business and modeling it a lot less cyclical than we believe it to be. Look, I live in Chicago. A lot of that industry is in Elkhart, Indiana. That's a couple hour drive from me. There's a lot of really good people there, um, but they happen to work in a cyclical industry, right? That's not as secular as Wall Street seems to believe it to be. And it's very easy to get lulled to sleep with um, the numbers have been good for a while. It's very easy to just, it's human nature to kind of, you know, project that linearly in a way that we don't happen to think it's true over the next, say, you know, a year to, you know, a year and a half-ish, right? So without picking on any specific company or whatnot, I'm just kind of giving you, a, a, a framing out how we might think about um, something to short. Do your shorts, do they have the same market cap profile as your longs or they could be yeah. bigger cap? They, they do. Yeah. Well, we try. I mean, we're trying to fish within the Russell 2000. I mean, certainly there'll be a few things that are above and below the average cap weight, but, but that's the, that's the job, right? I mean, mm-hmm. look, there's a lot of funds out there and we specifically uh, for our clients do small caps, right? And so, that's where we fit in their asset allocation, and and we try and do that to the best of our abilities every day. So, do you, is there a risk of the smaller cap companies they can squeeze? You know, this company just reported earnings; it's up sixty percent, whereas you know, oh, Apple uh-huh. is not going to be up sixty percent. Sure. Well, Nvidia might. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that's fair. But you know, many of these companies do have street coverage. I don't. I've probably been somewhat pejorative on the street. I think, by and large, the market is largely efficient. Most of those 1,100 companies in the Russell 2,000 minus the domain-specific ones are relatively priced reasonably, right? I'm looking for a handful of stocks long and a handful of stocks short, right? It's, for me, 15 to 20 long, double that on the short side. So you don't need the, the whole market to be wrong. You just need a few rifle shot companies or industries where you feel like you have a variant perception where the numbers are just, you think you're going to be right and you have the research to back it up. And if you are, you're going to be happy. And if you're wrong, you're not going to be happy. And then, you know, that's, that's the game we play. Mm. Kyle, it's amazing. We've gone as long as we have without talking about macro. This is a macro podcast. How much do you worry about macro? Oh, this industry, I'm super bullish on this stock. It's very cheap, very high quality earnings. But if, if, we have a recession in the U.S. Everything that I just said goes out the window. So how often do you think about that as a, as a risk? Like, is it fair to say that small caps in general are more economically sensitive yes. than large cap stocks, yes. more perhaps interest rate sensitive than the, the large cap stocks? And so, you know, how, how worried have you been throughout this macro cycle when, you know, a lot of people have you know, wrongly been predicting a recession and how worried about 
macro are you right now? Yeah, it's a great question. I think a lot of people before the GFC who try to run money the way that we try and run money would have poo-pooed macro and said, no, I'm a stock picker and macro is less important for me. I think the GFC was a rude awakening to many of us that macro absolutely matters. Um, so it matters, but as a long short investor, it probably matters less because our net exposure to any one you know, uh, sector, industry, whatnot is is less. So it matters, but it's not uh, it's not our our calling card. Our calling card is focusing on single names and and picking them and getting them right. Got it. And is there anything right now that you are seeing in individual companies? Like, hmm, all these steel companies that you know were doubling their earnings in 2022, indicating a robust economy. That's kind of slowing down a little. Like I'm just making that up. But anything are you seeing in that that gives you to be optimistic or pessimistic on the on the U.S. economy? On the U.S. economy, I mean, U.S. economy is pretty strong. Consumers pretty strong. Balance sheets are reasonable. The European economy is in shambles. Really? I mean, our co- our conversations with European uh, CEOs are very very negative. Um, and then Asia is pretty mixed. But U.S. look best best house on the block for sure in terms of you know lab- people are working people are saving enough. I mean credit card debt is high, but so is uh, but so is net savings, right? A lot of people banked a lot of money during COVID. So, but there's bifurcations, right? I mean, I, like anything, the lower income consumer is very dependent on uh, not only the price of price of credit, price of money, but also the labor market, right? And if and if job losses tick up for whatever reason, um, you know, that segment of the consumer is going to get hit hard, same as always, right? And that's, you know, we'll see. I think, you know, 12 months ago, a lot of people thought there was a recession, and we were kind of scratching our heads saying, I, I don't know, the commentary and the numbers are pretty good. And now everyone's sure that there's no recession. And we're saying, well, Probably, but you know, everybody seems like they're on one side of the boat here. At least that's what implied by the prices of the stocks are. And you got a, a wild election in the U.S. You got geopolitical unrest. You got onshoring and nearshoring and, and supply chains, you know, and you got inflation, which seems out of control, but that could pick up. And, and any one of those for an unknown reason, could cause instability in the market. So for us, I mean, we're always we're always trying to look for the clouds appearing on the horizon because that's our job. But the sky is pretty blue right now in the U.S., quite frankly. The sky is pretty blue. Interesting to hear you say the sky is blue in the U.S., but in Europe, it's in, it's in shambles. Uh, Kyle, let's close with one uh, s- stock that we haven't talked about, not the one that we agreed not to talk about, but that it's not that and not not Globe. What's What's the most interesting name that that you'd like to talk about well we have an investment in in calumet specialty products um that's a business that is uh currently north american's largest volume producer of sustainable aviation fuel um this is a quintessential small cap in that it is currently an mlp uh they are converting to a c-corp they're spinning out their growth business which is their renewable fuel business they produce renewable diesel and sustainable aviation fuel in montana at this uh, converted um canadian heavy heavy crude refinery 
So super cool, super uh, wonderful unit economics, you know, $1.50 to $1.75 EBITDA per gallon on this facility. There's rumors that the Department of Energy is going to uh, loan them some money to expand the facility. This is all public market information, right? So we're, you know, they could uh, get this this conversion from MLP to a C-Corp done to be in the index, uh, in the Russell 2000 index by the spring. Um, so there's a lot of change going on there. And that's one that's, uh, it's a bit of a hedge fund hotel, quite frankly. Um, we were not the first one to spot it, but it was uh, something we, we uh, invested in last summer and think has a lot of uh, potential. But it, it's a bit of a cottage industry, sustainable aviation field. But I think you're going to hear a lot more about it over the next uh, five to 10 years. That's interesting. And is it zero carbon or just reduced, reduced carbon? Yeah, the this sustainable aviation fuel uh, that is produced by Calumet has about a 70-70% reduction of carbon compared to uh, fossil-based jet A. So wow. it's meaningful. That it's is meaningful. And, yeah. Wow. And it and it uses the existing infrastructure. Any plane on the planet can run on the fuel because it's chemically identical to fossil-based jet A. So it it's not a full a full scale perfect solution of zero carbon but it's certainly a step in the right direction in terms of decarbonizing air transportation and it's something that we believe governments want we believe large corporations want and ultimately consumers want with the caveat that it is more expensive to produce and um and we think Calumet and some of the other early producers are going to make super normal returns over the next say five years in that industry. So that's why we're paying attention. Thanks, Kyle. Final question for you. I know a lot of the names you pay attention to are in some way beneficiaries of American industrial policies, particularly the the IRA Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, Can you say how you think that's kind of changing the landscape for companies? And do you think that it will, I mean, maybe this is, you know, too, too broad a question, but do you think it is, uh, uh, you know, keeping holding up the American economy because so many firms are producing here? Well, there is certainly a domestic focus to that policy, but I think regardless of whether the administration or Congress is red or blue, uh, there's been a focus on nearshoring and onshoring, and I think that's a global trend, not just in the U.S., but it is it is certainly in the U.S. That onshoring and nearshoring is incredibly inflationary. So I think that's one of the reasons we're a little skeptical that we've seen the worst of the inflation numbers, um, or at least that we're at 2% in, in perpetuity from here on out. But yeah, I mean, the IRA has put a lot of people to work. It's put a lot of capital to work in the United States at attractive ROICs. And the government is trying to incentivize certain policy outcomes, but um, capitalism is is this wonderful a uh, mechanism by which more and more people have a higher and higher quality of life each year. And so I, you know, before I was a fund manager, I was a capitalist first because I understood it's by far the best way for societies and economies to um, let individuals flourish economically speaking. So yeah, it's a wonderful uh, bump to to our domestic capitalistic uh, society. And, you know, hopefully the inflation that it's designed to reduce which it will not, it will cause inflation, but hopefully it won't be too bad. Yeah. Uh, so Kyle, th- thanks so much for, for coming on. Two things, how can people find out more about Grizzly Rock Capital 
And uh, what book or source or article would you recommend the most that's kind of, you know, if people want to learn more about value investing as, as an art? Sure. So uh, our business, our funds are, are private, but um, info at Grizzly Rock Capital. Um, if you're an accredited investor, we can add you to our distribution list and or you can see our materials or direct um, any question on anything. Um, you can speak with me, Kyle, at grizzlyrockcapital.com. In terms of books, I know that uh, Seth Klarman is less popular than he might have been 20 or 30 years ago, but I think the book Margin of Safety is incredibly concise with respect to the type of work that many of us in the value community uh, aspire to do on a daily basis. And so I think that is a quick read if you can, you know, I think it's coming back into print. It's been pretty expensive, but many libraries have it or whatnot. So Margin of Safety is good. And most of the stuff by Greenblatt, Buffett, Munger, these these are all things that are pretty accessible for sure if you're, if you're trying to learn Graham. about Oh, yeah. Graham, yeah. Security analysis. But, you know, security analysis is pretty old. It's old. It's like it's like talking about like railroad bonds and stuff. So it's like, OK, railroads are great, but, but I think people largely understand railroads now. I mean, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, that's a good point. Well, uh, Kyle, thanks so much for co- coming on. Yeah, and thanks appreciate everyone your time. Thanks, Jack. Thanks for watching. Remember to check out vanek.com slash hodlfg to learn more about the Vanek Bitcoin Trust, ticker HODL. A reminder that Forward Guidance episodes are available on all podcast apps and on Twitter, where I post them regularly at JackFarley96. Thanks again. Until next time.